Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Right, well, we seem to have reached critical mass, mass and we will reward those who... Um, who are joining on time. But it's um, good morning to Professor Mabubani and good evening to those in the United States. Good afternoon to those of you in the West Coast. I've been looking forward to doing this program since this summer when I had one of the truly wonderful beach reads, which is Kishore's book from that came out this April called Has China Won? It's basically a view of US-China relations and what each country needs to do in a way that Americans are not talking about it and Chinese are not talking about it. In a lot of ways, Kishore, for me, it reminded me of kind of discussions I had over my career with your prime minister, Li Guan Yu, who had an ability to look at things frankly. And even when he was, when it appeared he was being abrasive, he was just being truthful. So your book really, I think, is on the, on the scale of being truthful, is at absolutely the highest level. I think it raises issues some Americans don't want to hear. It raises issues some Chinese don't want to hear. But it provides a clear-eyed view of where the United States and China are and what the risks are if we continue down this path. So it is absolutely a fabulous book. I mean, it's, as I think about it, it's now on my must read list that, you know, when people come to me and they say, well, what books should I read uh, to understand US-China relations? Now it's gonna be, has China won going alongside of, of Henry Kissinger's book uh, on China, um, maybe Richard McGregor's book on the party, it really educates so much and is so valuable. Um, I wanted to offer a quick thanks to Steve Oaken, who played a role in, in making sure we, will, we were able to do this. Um, but I can't thank you enough for joining us. I can't thank you enough for the role you play in public education. And I can't thank you enough for reading a for writing a book, which I really hope uh, the Biden administration reads before they come up, come up with their policies on China. So let's start at the very beginning. And I will just ask you, why this book? Why now? And what were you seeking to accomplish? Uh, thank you. Thank you very much, Steve, for that very, very generous uh, introduction. As you said, the book came out in uh, uh, April and of course COVID nineteen shut down the bookstores. <laughs> you can still so buy that, it now. So you can, uh, uh, you know, say. But let me explain why I wrote the book. Uh, and, and I consider myself both a friend of America and a friend of China, and and I'm trying to be helpful to both. Uh, and it's very clear to me that a major tragedy is in the offing, sadly, because you you you're getting a huge geopolitical contest that is gaining momentum. Uh, between the U.S. Uh, and, and, and China. So uh, let me just quickly make three points in response to your question. The first is that this, tra this tragedy, uh, this U.S.-China contest is both inevitable and avoidable. The second point is that mistakes have been made by both sides. And the third point, I want to explain why actually we can still prevent uh, this contest. And I'll do that very quickly. The first point, of course, is that the, the reason why this contest is inevitable is because it's driven by three structural forces. The first one is what Graham Allison has spoken about when an emerging power is about to overtake the world's number one power. The world's number one power, as Graham Allison documented, always pushes down the emerging power. So what the United States is trying to do in trying to push down China is logical behavior. But the second part that no one talks about is that this contest has got very huge emotional overtones that are driven by a fear of the yellow peril in the Western psyche. And I surface that because I think it's important for us to address the emotional dimensions in this US-China uh, contest. 
And of course, the third factor, of course, is that in the United States, there is a bipartisan consensus against China because there was a kind of a great uh, expectation that as China opened up economically, China would also open up politically and China would become like America. And that, of course, didn't happen. And as Kurt Campbell said in his Foreign Affairs article, there was disappointment in the United States when that, had, when that didn't happen. But as I say in my book, when future historians look at this expectation, they'll be very puzzled that the U.S. expected that a country with one quarter the population of China with 250 years history would transform a 4,000 year civilization. That's an example of an unrealistic uh, expectation. So the structural forces are driving this. But at the same time, mistakes have been made by both sides. Uh, and the Chinese mistake was to alienate the US business community. And it was completely unnecessary. And especially after 2008, 2009, there's a certain degree of arrogance crept into China, into the, uh, some officials in China. And that, that, that's, that's in some ways fueling this conflict. By the same time, on the United States side, and this is why I quote both Henry Kissinger and George Cannon in my book, the mistake the United States is making is that it hasn't worked out a long-term strategy to deal with China. And I hope in that sense, my book is helpful saying, maybe before you embark on this contest, why don't you ask some fundamental questions of what you are trying to achieve? And you, you're right to mention Lee Kuan Yew because the three founding leaders of Singapore were Lee Kuan Yew, Go Keng Sui and Rajaratnam. And from them, I learned how to formulate strategies. And as you know, in chapter one, I asked 10 strategic questions that uh, the US should address. So for example, one simple strategic question the US should address is what's really important to the American people? The primacy of America or the condition of its people? And I actually believe the United States should pay attention to the condition of its people. It's more important than its primacy because the United States is the only, only major developed country where the average income of the bottom 50% has gone down, sadly, over the last 30 years. So therefore, I conclude the book, and I'll stop there in a minute, that the United States and China, and this is a key point I'm trying to make, can avoid this conflict. They really, really can avoid this conflict because there's no fundamental clash uh, of interests here. Because if the, if the primary goal of the United States is to improve the well-being of its people, and the primary goal of China is to improve the well-being of the Chinese people, there is no contradiction in two countries trying to improve the well-being of their people. And at the same time, I think that this is the most critical point that we should all be aware of, is that we now live in a small interdependent world where the real challenges are global. And I thought this is the big message that COVID-19 is trying to send to us, that we are all on the same boat, we have to come together to kill COVID-19. Similarly, global warming is proving that uh, uh, it's a common challenge we have to deal with. So as you know, in the last line of my book, I say, if the US and China keep on fighting while global warming is going on, uh, future historians will see them like two tribes of apes fighting each other while the forest around them is burning. And you assume that human species are more intelligent than apes, we should actually stop this fighting and focus on turn, turning off the fires of global warming, turning off the fire of COVID-19. So I hope at the end of the day, my book will be helpful to both US and China. I, I think it is, I think it is. Now, the book obviously got published about almost six months ago, uh, was written in 2019. Um, it was written before COVID, before the TikTok WeChat, um, controversy before Secretary Pompeo's um, clean network initiative, before the deaths on the uh, Sino-Indian border. Would you have written some stuff differently? No, actually, uh, uh, in some ways, all the events, uh, well, uh, it's either fortunately or unfortunately, uh, have reinforced the thesis of my book. <laughs> And you know, I, I, I kept emphasizing that this uh, US-China geopolitical contest will uh, gain momentum, and it has, it has gained momentum. But you know, the, the, when you mentioned Secretary Pompeo, you know, I want to emphasize a key point here. You know, he said in the speech, and I'm quoting now his speech, huh? he said in my quote, if we don't act now, ultimately the Chinese Communist Party will erode our freedoms and subvert the rules-based order that our free societies before worked so hard to build. But actually, 
the Chinese Communist Party is very, very different from the Soviet Communist Party. The Soviet Communist Party believed that it had a competing ideology. It could deliver a better society than capitalism. And ironically today, even though China is run by the mm -hmm. Chinese Communist Party, China is actually in some ways more capitalist. <laughs> it's producing so many billionaires. Uh, in fact, far more billionaires than any other countries in terms of new billionaires. So it is, it, there is no clash of ideologies within China and the United States. And you know, when, when Americans say that uh, the Chinese Communist Party is a threat to American democracy, I say that the two largest democracies outside the United States are India and Indonesia. India and Indonesia are very troubled by China's rise, but they don't worry that the democracy will be subverted by China because China doesn't believe in exporting uh, its system. So in that sense, it's fundamentally different from uh, the Soviet Union. And the second thing I would say is that when Secretary of State Pompeo says that China wants to subvert the rules-based order, actually that's not true because the Chinese actually are now the biggest beneficiaries of this rules-based order. They're the world's biggest trading power. They need freedom of navigation more than the United States does <laughs> because they, there are more Chinese products on, on international seaways than American products. <laughs> so if, if, if there's a breakdown in the rules-based order, China suffers more than the United States. And the Chinese, as you know, are very conservative. They don't like change. <laughs> they prefer status quo. <laughs> So they like the rules-based order. <laughs> so I guess in that sense, I would say nothing fundamentally has changed since the book came out. Only it just reinforced what I tried to say. What about the Sino-Indian, the deaths on the Sino-Indian border? You, you make, you know, I, I think you, you yeah. state that it's a big deal that China has not fired a shot in mm. anger. Uh, yeah. As opposed to the other members yeah. of the B5, all of whom have, have fired weapons. Uh, however, this was pretty, pretty close and was pretty ugly. Yeah. Yes, you're absolutely right. And, and, and you're right. I mean, I do emphasize that it's actually the Chinese have exercised quite remarkable strategic discipline in not fighting a war in 40 years and actually not fighting a bullet in 30 years since the U.S.-Vietnamese naval skirmish in 1989. But you're right. What happened at the China-India border was truly, truly sad. Uh, it was unnecessary, but it was an accident about to happen. Because what happened is that, and this is where technology is the problem. The reason why China and India basically did not go to war for most of 2000 years is because the Himalayas were so formidable, it separated China and India. But nowadays in modern technology, the Chinese are building better and better roads up the Himalayas, the Indians are building better and better roads up the Himalayas. So the physical proximity of Chinese Indian soldiers has become closer and closer. And the tragedy is that uh, it only happened because an Indian colonel went to check whether or not the Chinese had dismantled the tent as they agreed to, and they discovered it had not been dismantled. And you know, it's a really, it's a sad story because the Indians got angry, they burned the tent. And of course, when you burn a tent in the Himalayas, the smoke goes up and the Chinese soldiers all around could see because the Chinese soldiers came down. And then you had a confrontation. And both sides stuck to the agreement, never brought their guns out. But you can kill people with, with fists and, and uh, with uh, wow. sticks. Yeah. And so as a result of that, many soldiers died, Indian side and Chinese side. And some just died because they fell down the cliffs and valleys. What do you think it means yeah. for the, the, the Sino-India? I mean, you're of Indian descent. Do you, <laughs> the, yeah. The, well, I think... What does it mean uh, for I, the Sino... And what, is, what does it mean for the Sino-Indian relationship? And we've seen the Indians yeah. take actually harsh economic action against the Chinese. Well, I, I have absolutely no doubt that the uh, sentiment in India has turned very anti-China. And, and just for your information, I appeared on an Indian TV show, which is a big mistake. <laughs> I tried to give a balanced view and I got slapped left, right and center. So, so I know the sentiment in India is very anti-China. But at the same time, the Indian foreign minister is a friend of mine, Jai Shankar, and he sent me his book. Uh, I have it somewhere here, uh, The India Way. And if you, even if you read the first opening pages of his book, he makes it very clear that India is not going to choose sides that India is going to, on the one hand, is going to join the Quad. The Quad, as you know, includes United States, Japan, Australia, and India. 
On the other hand, in the same sentence, you say, well, we are also members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization with China and Russia. And so the, the Indians, I think, will try to balance it. And the Indians have the opportunity to, in a sense, have the same kind of strategic leverage that China had in the Cold War. As you know, in the Cold War, China had leverage because if he moved to the United States or he moved to Soviet Union, he could exercise leverage over the two by being in the middle. So I think that the position where India will strive to be somewhere in the middle, but of course it's going to be difficult as the contest becomes bigger and bigger. But I don't see the Indians formally joining an alliance with the United States against China. It's, it's, it's unlikely because it's not in their interest to do that. One of the stunning statements in the book saying that Russia would become an ally of the United States. Can you, and, and that, of course, I thought about that in terms of the Quad, yeah. that if you had India, yeah. Australia, Japan, and then Russia, that yeah. would be quite stunning. Yeah, I know, but this- Explain this how that... that would happen. I mean, it's really quite, it's certainly yeah. not where the United States body politic is today. Yeah, but you know, I, I'll tell you a, a true story, Steve. In, in 1985, and I, and I want to emphasize that the Cold War was still on. Singapore and Vietnam were at loggerheads over Vietnam's occupation of Cambodia. United States and Soviet Union were at loggerheads in the UN. I gave a speech in Columbia University, at, you know, uh, in, in, uh, actually at the Council on, on Foreign Relations, sorry. And, and I said, this is like what I said, 1985. I said, today, United States and Vietnam are at loggerheads. But I predict that within 10, 20 years, the U.S. naval base will move from Kamran Bay, uh, from, sorry, from Subic Bay to Kamran Bay. So at the height of tension between Vietnam and United States, I predicted that Vietnam will get close to the United States. And that's pure, you know, there's a certain logic in geopolitics. So sure enough, as soon as the Cold War ended, Vietnam realized its number one challenger is not the United States, but China. So to balance China, Vietnam is going to move to the United States. And that's what's happened, as you know. And some of my prediction, which was made uh, 35 years ago, has come true now. So in the same way, if you are a Russian strategic planner, and remember in the Cold War, Soviet Union's GNP was much, much bigger than China, you know, much bigger. Today, China's GNP is 10 times almost the size of uh, uh, Russia, right? So you can imagine, if I was a Russian strategic planner, I don't, I don't worry about American troops invading Russia. I worry about being close to the incredible giant. So it is quite natural that Russians will gravitate in one way or another towards getting closer to the West, to Europe and, and, and to the United States. But it's, as you know, sadly, as, also, as I also explained in the book, the, the Russians became alienated only because the U.S. expanded NATO up to very close to the, uh, uh, Russia. And I think that was, and, and Tom Friedman and, and Henry Kissinger and all have suggested that it's a mistake. So if, if the United States could show some sensitivity to Russian geopolitical interests, it's quite natural that Russia will gravitate uh, towards the West. Uh, uh, and I think I'm sure the Chinese can see this coming, although as of now, clearly, there is a geopolitical reason why China and Russia are working together, because both are under enormous pressure, both uh, from the United States. But ultimately, you see a split between China and Russia, as has occurred in history, and then seeing Russia mm -hmm. moving closer to the EU and the United States. Mm -hmm. That, that's where the geopolitical interests will drive them. You know, you, you said that we, the, the, the biggest strategic mistake the Chinese have made has been alienated the U.S. business community because that undercut support for U.S.-China relations in the United States. What about their actions, China's actions in the South China Sea? What about mm -hmm. China's actions in Xinjiang? Mm -hmm. What about a Hong Kong national security law that's far overly broad? Um, these are alien. What about an NGO management law, which China enacted, which caused the NGO community in the United States to become less pro-constructive U.S.-China relations, that there are all these other 
actions by the Chinese which have undermined other constituencies in the United States, which formerly used to be pro-constructive engagement? Uh, very, very good questions. And you're absolutely right. You put your finger on the issues that have uh, alienated the uh, uh, many people in America towards uh, China. And uh, I, I want to, uh, number one, emphasize that the expectation, as Kurt Campbell said in his essay in the United States, was that as China grew and developed economically, China would become like the U.S. politically. And of course, it may happen. But, you know, as a geopolitical realist, the one lesson you learn is that you've got to deal with realities. And I, I think if you, are, if you keep wishing, hoping and praying that China will become a liberal democracy, you, I think you will die a disappointed person because it will not happen. China will follow its own internal logic. China will not behave or become like the United States. But to balance that, as you know, I quote a Stanford University psychologist, Gene Fund, who says that the Chinese people are actually quite happy with the government that they have. And recently, a Harvard Kennedy School study that just came out pointed out that support for the Chinese Communist Party is growing. And the Chinese Communist Party knows that if it doesn't enjoy the support of its people, it will lose power. So it has to forge its own social contract. Now, I guess that's a broader general point. Now, on each of the specific issues you, mean, you mentioned, South China Sea, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, each one has got its own logic. And on South China Sea, I completely agree with you that China has been unnecessarily assertive. But I emphasize there's a big difference between assertive and aggressive. Because if the, if the Chinese behave like how the United, as you, know, as you know, Graham Allison says, many Americans wish that China would behave like America. Graham Allison says, be careful what you wish for. If the Chinese behave like United States in the end of the 19th century, they would behave like Teddy Roosevelt and they would have seized all the islands in the South China Sea. That's what Teddy Roosevelt would have done. But they haven't done that, as you know. And in the, in the case of South China Sea, as you know, Steve, in, in my book, I quote uh, a lunch discussion I had with State Ambassador Stapleton Roy, where he said that President Xi Jinping actually made an offer to uh, demilitarize the islands in South China Sea. And as, as Ambassador Stapleton Roy says, that offer, unfortunately, was not taken up. So an opportunity was lost. So both sides, in a sense, have made mistakes uh, in the uh, South China Sea. Now, on the question of Hong Kong, uh, I, I, I think the the um, the other the other incident which I quote in my book again <laughs> is that in 1961 John F Kennedy and Harold Macmillan, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, sent a joint letter to Prime Minister Nehru saying, "Please don't take back Goa. You know, uh, let the Portuguese run it." And as you know, Nehru responded within a few weeks by seizing Goa. And, and trust me, if China today had a democratic government instead of a communist party government, it would have shut down the one country, two systems immediately and taken back Hong Kong. Uh, and, and to that extent, the Chinese actually have, in that sense, been uh, restrained. But the, what, what triggered these problems in Hong Kong was, as you know, the, the demonstrations and the riots. And I, by the way, I saw them in my own eyes. I was there. And the mistake that the protesters made was to use violence, you know? And that's always a mistake. The state must have monopoly of violence. So when things got out of control, that's how the, the Chinese reacted. By the end of the day, the big question is, will Hong Kong collapse as a result of the new measures put in by China, the national security law? And it can, it can collapse. But I would say it is unlikely to. It's unlikely to. Hong Kong will carry on. And Hong Kong will have to live a very difficult existence in a really difficult zone of trying to be, in a sense, uh, doing things that will be acceptable to China, which they're part of. They're part of Chinese sovereign territory and also remaining open to the rest of the world. So Hong Kong is going to go through a very difficult time. But those who are friends of Hong Kong, uh, like me, hope that Hong Kong will carry on with a one country, two systems. They won't break down completely. Uh, the final point on uh, Xinjiang, well, Xinjiang is of course uh, uh, a, a tragedy and, and it's a bit uh, sad that you have so many people being detained in Xinjiang.
but when I was doing research for my book and I went, when I was in Shanghai, several people in China told me that just, had, just as America had its 9-11 moment when America got uh, uh, attacked uh, in 9-11 and I was in New York when America was attacked. In the same way, the Chinese claimed that they had their own 9-11 moment and they were attacked also uh, by separatists in different cities. And so they, they, that, that's how they justify and explain what they did. And, and I hope that, uh, uh, that at the end of the day, they will find a better solution than what they have done so far. Actually, you know, it's interesting. Ken Lieberthal has raised, you know, former senior director for Asia um, at the National Security Council has raised the question, which I was gonna raise, which is, I don't think it's accurate to say that any US administration since Nixon's visit to China, expected China to become a liberal democracy. Have you, over the years, had serious discussions with U.S. officials in office that indicate otherwise? Certainly, Ken is speaking from his time in the Clinton administration. I can speak to my time in the Carter administration. We weren't, there weren't confidential papers which said, because we're establishing diplomatic relations, because we're going to build this constructive relationship, because we're going to allow China into the WTO, we think it's going to be a liberal democracy. We hoped, we certainly hoped for more market reform. Um, but we didn't expect China to be like us. So did you talk to American officials that suggested otherwise? Yeah. I hope you don't mind. I'm just going to read a few sentences from page 135. <laughs> uh, Kurt Campbell, as you know, co-authored an article with Eli yeah. Ratner. What they say, eh? Which we ever don't necessarily agree with. <laughs> yeah, ever since apportionment began under Nixon, the assumption that deepening commercial, diplomatic, and cultural ties would transform China's internal development and external behavior has been a bedrock of U.S. strategy. Even those in U.S. policy circles were skeptical of China's intentions to share the underlying belief that U.S. power and hegemony could readily mold China to the United States' liking. I mean, this is a little verbatim what, what they have said. So I think uh, uh, it will be very, it's very important to emphasize this is a very high-level source uh, that is saying this. And, 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 and I think if you read the U.S. media, the, the U.S. media is actually very uh, categorical in saying that, and you know, I also quote in the same chapter what the economists and others have said in the, uh, when, when Xi Jinping removed his term limits, and, and the economists said categorically, you know, this is, he's going against what we expected from China. We expected China to open up and become more democratic, you know, and so there are a whole series of quotations. And, 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 I, and I think that if, if, if indeed uh, this is not an expectation of the United States, it's actually very positive because China will have to evolve on its own internal logic. And, you know, from the Chinese point of view, I mean, both you and Ken Bibetal understand Chinese history better than I do, by the way. As you know, the Chinese biggest fear, and this is a fear of the Chinese people also, is chaos. And so for them, strong central rule in China means the people are better off. Weak central rule in China means the people suffer. And, 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 uh, and, 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 and just uh, yesterday, I was reading in the New York uh, Review of Books an article about two Chinese poets in the Tang Dynasty and how much they suffered from the chaos. You know, in the, in the middle of the Tang Dynasty, the chaos that happened. And so you can see that in the Chinese mind, the number one concern is chaos. And, and if, they, if they go for strong central rule, there's a reason for that. And, and but if the United States expects China to become like the United States, then, then that becomes a yeah, problem. I, I distinguish. In other words, I never, I lived in, I've lived most, you know, good part of my adult life in China. So I'm dealing with Chinese officials throughout my entire 43-year career. Uh, I never expected China to be like the United States, but I did expect improvements in rule of law. I watched, because I am a lawyer by training, I watched 
hundreds of thousands of lawyers get trained. I watch his judge get, judges get trained. I didn't expect, however, that they would initiate policies like they have in Xinjiang. I didn't expect what they've done in Hong Kong. They're so overly assertive. I guess the, you would say assertive as opposed to aggressive. I think, you know, mm -hmm. South China Sea, I didn't expect that they would operate in violation of international law. I, I, I actually, I agree with you. China is, has benefited and knows it's benefited from the international system. And I didn't expect them to be changing it. That doesn't, the United States, I would argue, in fact, over the last three and a half years, the United States has participated less in the international order than, than China has and is, le is leading to the destruction of the international order. But still, the thing, the overly assertive, overly aggressive policies that they're taking um, is, to me, very surprising. Mm. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. They have become more assertive. And the question, therefore, practical question becomes is how, how do you transform China? As you know, in my book and in my previous books, I have quoted from a speech that pres former President Bill Clinton gave in Yale in 2003, where, uh, where President Bill Clinton said, if United States is going to be number one forever, then fine, US can keep on doing whatever it's doing. As you say, we got the Jews to do it. But as you know, Bill Clinton added a but in that speech. He said, but if you can conceive of a world where we're no longer one, number one, then it is in United States' long-term national interest to strengthen multilateral rules, multilateral processes, multilateral institutions, multilateral norms, you know. So in a sense, I would say if, if, if our common goal is to make China uh, a more rules-based great power, then the best way to transform China is not to lecture China, but to lead by example. And so to, just to make a very painful point to you, if the United States believes that China is violating the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, then the best thing United States can do is to ratify the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. Because my fear, this is a genuine fear I have, if the United States can walk away from the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, and I think it is the only country that's out of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, if I'm not mistaken, then it opens the door for United for China to do so also. So you got to you got to transform because you know in, even in human behavior, like in a parent-child relationship, the child doesn't listen to the words of the parents. The child watches what the parent does and learns from it. So in the same way, United States got to show in its behavior that it wants to strengthen the rules-based order. But as you said, in the last three and a half years, sadly. The Trump administration has been creating so many loopholes in international law. And I say, and I keep repeating over and over again, every loophole the United States creates in international law today is a loophole that China will walk through tomorrow. <laughs> so don't create loopholes. Yeah. And that's why I go back to Bill Clinton's speech, you know. And, and you're right, but the, we, we do want to have a more rules-based uh, China. Yes. Yep. Yep. And the question is, how do, how do we get there? I, I mean, you have no ambiguity about whether America is going to remain uh, the, 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 large, the, the biggest power as I think on page 250, you say, as America slides towards becoming inevitably the number two power in the world. Do you, you yeah. believe that America will be the number two power, that it won't be some sharing with China that, will actually, that America will actually be number two? Well, I think in terms of the size of GNP, uh, America will become inevitably uh, number two, by the way. And, you know, the, you know I, want, I want to emphasize this. You know, in the very beginning of the book, I say, the United States has been the most successful country ever in human history. And as you know, I have a fictional memo in my uh, opening chapter to, from a colleague of Xi Jinping, the President Xi Jinping, saying, oh, the great contest has begun again within China, within China and the U.S. We're going to have a, a long-term uh, uh, challenge from the United States. But, and the, but the memo says, whatever we do, we must never underestimate the United States. And so actually, from the point of view of many in Asia, we want to see a strong United States. We don't want to see a weak United States. 
But you see, but to, to see a strong United States, United States got to heed the advice of strategic thinkers like Kissinger and Kennan, especially Kennan. And Kennan emphasized at the end of the day, the outcome of the contest between US and China will depend on the internal spiritual vitality of American society. And as you know, uh, several Americans, uh, you know, economists like Case and Deaton have described the sea of despair among the white working classes. So, but what I can say, even if America's GNP is number two, America can still be number one as a model, you know? But to be number one as a model, you'll not depend on your external behavior as much as on, on your internal strength of your society. But today, United States is so divided and, and the people are so unhappy, you know, the, the, all the studies show this. So, as you know, it would be very difficult for you to stand up and say, we in America are now a shining city on the hill. Because, I mean, the rest of the world is become, thanks to the United States, eh? I want to emphasize this very, very important point. The, the quality of minds outside the United States, because they've been educated in the best American universities, it is your Harvard graduates, your Yale graduates, your Stanford graduates, your Princeton graduates living in Asia who are looking at the United States and say, wow, what's going wrong there? Yeah. So I would say if you, if you want to win the contest, don't focus on having a bigger military. Don't focus on having more nuclear weapons. Focus, as George Cannon said, on strengthening the internal spiritual vitality of American society. And that would make all of us very happy. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the candidates running for president is, is quite aware of that. If you look at his China policy, it's about you know, competing by rebuilding America. Um, yeah. I think you, the parts of the book which talk about social mobility in China versus mm -hmm. social mobility in America are, were truly fascinating and how this was part of what has led to the disaffection of such huge numbers of people. Your, your, <clears throat> your data on prison populations, you know, America imprisons 0.65 uh, of a percent of people and China uh, 0.11. So America, there are more Americans in jail despite having a population of between a quarter and a fifth of China than there are Chinese. It, it's simply remarkable and what, and social mobility for Chinese is in many ways more possible than it is for Americans. And your data on what's happened to the bottom 50% of America over the last 40 years is true. It's just, it's something America needs to focus on. Part of why I think this book is so important. Um, just, just a quick point, I would say, I, I want to mention this in one line. If there's one book that, that Americans should go back and read, they should read the book by one of America's greatest recent uh, political philosophers, John Rawls, A Theory of Justice. Yeah. I studied Rawls. I did my master's degree on John Rawls. And John Rawls emphasizes that at the end of the day, if you want to judge what's happening in a society, don't look at the top 10%. Look at the bottom 10%. Right? And here, this is the tragedy is that the bottom 10% in the United States has actually been suffering a lot. And yeah. we should take care of them. The, um, boy, I have so many more questions, but I, I see I've got over a dozen questions asked. COVID, you, you, you talk about, you, you think that China is a meritocracy, that, that the, the Communist Party officials are really very able. Uh, COVID, they're dealing with COVID initially was a governance failure. It was a failure. They had in place systems which were not followed because the party interfered. How does that make you think about China's future? Yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, China made mistakes in the first few weeks of COVID-19. Uh, and, uh, but at the same time, I've spoken to a lot of doctors uh, and they say that when a new virus emerges, it's actually very, very difficult to tell exactly what's going on. So for those who want to read what happened in the first few weeks in, in Wuhan, I would say read two articles. The first is by Professor Stephen Roach uh, of Yale University. He co-authored an article in Project Syndicate with Shan Beijian, who's the author of the best-selling book, Out of the Gobi. And they document what really happened. 
and they, they describe the mistakes, but say that at the same time, they also did some right things. And the other person to read is Richard Horton, the editor of the Lancet magazine, which is one of the most prestigious medical journals. And he points out that by early Jan by, by 23rd January, Lancet had published everything you needed to know about how dangerous this disease was. On 23rd January, I want to emphasize that, Lancet had come up. So the, 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 the notion that the United States and the West wasn't warned is actually not true. Uh, the, 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 the warnings were actually given. So, but I, I hope that all this will come up. But the, at the end of the day, and this is a very sad okay, uh, commentary, the, the, what really demonstrates how much China has become a meritocracy in terms of handling COVID-19 is that if the United States had the same number of deaths per capita from COVID-19, as China. Uh, United States, instead of having 210,000 deaths, would have less than 1,000. Yeah. That's the, a the, the, That's, that's a very absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the America's failure mm. to handle COVID will go down mm. in history as one of the most incredible government failures ever, maybe ever in the United States. Mm. But that does not excuse the, no, you're right. The, the, the mishandling of the beginning of the mm. virus in China. So, so we need to, you know, the Trump mm. administration has tried to confuse the two, saying, just blame China. It wasn't our fault. Well, so what about Singapore? What about Vietnam? What about Thailand? What about Taiwan? What about all these places that basically don't have any COVID cases? Canada has no new COVID cases anymore. So it's, 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 uh, there's, yeah, there's one, there's one statistic that I think every person should know, that the number of deaths per million from COVID-19 in both Europe and United States, by the way, is in the hundreds, 500, 600, 700, 800, right? In East Asia, it doesn't matter whether they're communist or non-communist, South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, and all that, it's less than 10. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's actually quite shocking. So it's not just about China, by the way. Yeah? It's yes. about East Asia. Yes, no, that's what I... I and, 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 and this goes to a critical point, which I actually wrote in an Economist uh, article, an Economist.com article, that it's about the emphasis on good governance. And in the United States, when after Ronald Reagan said, government is not the solution, government is the problem, unfortunately, key governmental institutions in the United States have been weaker. So I say, oh, this is a friend of the United States. I think the United States should start rebuilding its institutions of governance. It's in American interest to do so. And we want to see a strong America with strong governmental institutions. That's good for the world. Okay, I'm going to try and run through a lot of questions. So we'll try to keep our answers brief because we, we got sure, to, sure. I'll combine one of my questions, which I now will just combine with, with the question from Anu Anwar, who's at Harvard these days. One is the House, this is the Democrats now, Kishore. The, the, the Democrat, the House Intelligence Committee wrote a report on China last Thursday, which I had the pleasure of reading. <laughs> um, and it says, I'm just four lines from it. Militarily, China has embarked on a massive modernization drive, creating a blue water Navy, investing heavily in hypersonic weapons, developing its own fifth generation fighter, militarizing a series of atolls in the South China Sea and building its first overseas base in Djibouti. So the question that I would ask is why and how, you know, what are the Chinese doing there? And Anu asks, in terms of the quad, how do you see the potential of a quad to be a formal NATO-like alliance to check China? And if that happens, how do you think China's ability to tackle such collective ex What do you think of China's ability to tackle such collective external challenges? Yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll keep my answers very short. Uh, and I say that if, if the Chinese spend more and more on defense, let them do so, they'll be wasting money. <laughs> and as you know, in my book, I say, the more that America spends on defense, the more the Chinese are happy because it means that money is not being spent on revitalizing your society. And the Chinese, I would say, as a percentage of their GNP, they have not increased their defense budget, but, but they have to, as you know, build these hypersonic weapons to counterbalance the American aircraft carriers down there. But the second point on the quad, and here I'm going to stick my neck out, okay? 
And if you ask me to make a prediction, just as I predicted that Vietnam would move closer to the United States in 1985, just as I predict that Russia would move closer to the United States, I think the Quad will become weaker and weaker. Because Australia, I'll give you an example, its defense ties are with the United States, but the economy is tied. And, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Martin Wolf may have written about this somewhere. Functionally, the Australian economy is like a province of China. In terms of its biggest market is China. So it would be, be a very difficult for Australia to keep up its current policies vis-a-vis -vis China. And, and, and I think even Japan, and if you read uh, what uh, uh, Astro Vogel's book, the Japanese have learned over 2,000 years certain ways and means of managing China, which means that they remain independent of China, but they also try not to confront China. You know, it's a, it's a very subtle balance. You know, it's a different game that is being played. So I would say the Quad is not based on the same strong foundations uh, as the ones that on which NATO was based. Was based. So it's, and I would say it's a mistake to, com to compare the Quad to NATO. The Quad will not become like NATO. The book thinks Australia doesn't want to take sides in a US-China dispute. But since the book's been written, we've seen Australia ban Huawei equipment, side mm. with Secretary Pompeo and very few other countries. Mm. I, I'm glad you mentioned Huawei. Let me tell you a story very quickly. In January this year, I was in Davos and I, I was on a panel with a very influential British person. And I asked this influential British person, what is the UK going to do on Huawei? And he said to me, Kishore, we have planted our GCHQ people into Huawei. We have scrubbed their software. Huawei is no threat to the UK. But I said to him, I say, of course, but the United States is going to put pressure on the United Kingdom. And he replied to me very confidently. He said, Kishore, the US needs the UK as much as the UK needs the US. This is in January 2020. By July 2020, the UK had capitulated. And I tell this story because was the British decision on Huawei a decision that they made from their own calculations or did they make it under pressure? And you see, unlike the Cold War, where, you, where the United Kingdom was 100% or 110% with the United States against the Soviet Union, the British today have to do their own calculations. So you will not get the same degree of enthusiasm in confronting China as you did in the Cold War against the Soviet Union. That's yeah. the key point I'm making. I think what happened on the UK decision not to purchase Huawei equipment was that the knock-on effects of the ban on the sale of chips to Huawei mm -hmm. caused the UK to question whether Huawei was going to be able to actually fulfill yeah. the contract. So the US, through this kind of um, restriction on chips to Huawei, was able to accomplish its purpose in the UK, mm -hmm. which was... Uh, interesting and, and probably uh, not in the long term in the interest of the people of the UK because they're going to get a equipment which is more expensive, which is slower. Um, so I think in the book you make the point the first role of government is to provide for its people. That's right. Give them good lives. And by going down this path, we're not doing a great job of providing uh, for the people. Um, Satoru Marasi, uh, who's a partner at Mayor Brown and an old friend asks, what concerns you the most or keeps you up at night re US-China relations? Uh, I, I, I fear uh, a further plunge in US-China relations. And, 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 and frankly, it's not necessary. It's absolutely not necessary. There, there another plunge in US-China relations. And uh, I would be, what, what would really make me very happy uh, is if the United States were to, number one, focus on rebuilding its society, its economy, so that the United States remains very strong over the long term. And then the United States uses diplomacy rather than defense as its primary weapon 
to balance, counterbalance China. And I emphasize in my book that if you look at the Southeast Asian region where there are 650 million people, there are huge reservoirs of goodwill towards the United States of America and Southeast Asia, huge reservoirs. But these reservoirs of goodwill can be tapped if you use diplomacy, rather than telling these countries you are either with us or against us. Because even, even, even if you ask them to say you're with us or against us, even Vietnam will not say, they, will not say they're against you or with you. Because Vietnam has lived with China for 2,000 years. Vietnam has been occupied by China 1,000 years. The Vietnamese know they cannot go into a headlong uh, confrontation with China. And so that, that everybody here is playing a very subtle game in terms of managing uh, China. And, and it'd be good for the United States to go back and ask itself, why was American diplomacy so successful in the Cold War? And, and you know, Singapore and the United States worked very closely in the UN. When I was ambassador to the UN, General Vernon Walters and I worked very closely together against the Soviet Union on Afghanistan, against the Soviet Union on Cambodia. We were really working closely together. And, and you know what General Vernon Walters said to me? Yeah, Kishore, it's better for us if you take the lead. We will go back. Which is very smart. Very smart. So the, the diplomacy is amazing. So I want American diplomacy to come back. I think pretty much all the listeners on this call, all the, all the viewers of this, this discussion want American diplomacy to, to come back. Um, Mort Holbrook, who used to be a foreign service officer, says, please elaborate more on China's alienating the U.S. business community. We don't see massive U.S. disinvestment. We still see active U.S. businesses as represented by AmCham, Beijing, Shanghai, and elsewhere. Where is the alienation? Uh, uh, the alienation is in one form, which is that in the past, uh, when the U.S. government would take uh, strong public stance against China, and as you know, in my book, I give examples. Uh, in my book, where the U.S. business community would call uh, State Department, would call the Commerce Department or other other call the White House and say, stop, 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 you are interfering with our big market. Whereas this time around, in the last three and a half years, they, they and you know, when the trade war was launched by Trump, uh, frankly, what surprised me was that no major American business voice said, hey, let's think twice about this trade war. And, and as you know, the, the record will show the trade war actually has hurt the United States as much as it has hurt uh, China. But your, your question is also right that U.S. investment in China continues, but it also continues because it is in China's national interest to attract American investment. And recently, as you know, uh, America, the United China has opened its doors more to American financial institutions. If I'm not mistaken, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase has gone into China now. Uh, together with the, yeah, brother, a lot of, uh, together with be wholly owned, yes. And I, and I, think, I think that's what the Chinese will try to do. And I think in private, the Chinese, by the way, in private, the Chinese have agreed with me, yeah? That they made a mistake <laughs> with the American business community. So they don't dispute it. They don't dispute that point. Yeah. I mean, Steve Oaken says China lost support from the US business community due to many of China's actions, cyber theft, not respecting IPR, et cetera. Do you think the current tensions in US China relations will change China's conduct in this regard? Well, uh, uh, I would say that uh, I'm not an expert on, on, on cyber theft, eh? but on intellectual property, uh, as you know, in, if you look at even in American history, and this is a fact, uh, when the United States was rising as a power, it stole a lot of intellectual property from the United Kingdom. <laughs> but as soon as the United States began producing enough intellectual property, the United States became the number one defender of intellectual property. So in the same way, China has also risen by stealing intellectual property. That's a fact. You can't deny it. But at the same time, now that the Chinese are producing enough intellectual property, China is going to switch from uh, stealing intellectual property to defending intellectual property. And on, 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 on cyber theft, I would say that my, my answer is what Bill Clinton said. Use international rules and norms to constrain China. And so create a global convention on cyber uh, use of cyber warfare. And I think that's the best way of constraining China. Here's an interesting question about Singapore from Arthur Xie, who's at uh, John Hopkins. 
Do you think Singapore still plays a role in China's economic and financial reforms, as well as being a balance between the United States and China and Southeast Asia? Well, I think, uh, as you know, the, the Singapore Prime Minister gave a, a great speech at the Shangri-La Dialogue last year in June and also published an article in the magazine Foreign Affairs. So if your listeners haven't read the article in Foreign Affairs, I would strongly commend it. And as you know, Singapore wants to be friends with America and, and has to be friends with China too. And is trying very hard not to get involved. Uh, and just like, every, just like every other Southeast Asian state, so I think in the United States, you know, you know, the first rule of diplomacy is you must have the capacity to listen. <laughs> Listening. If you don't listen, you cannot be a good diplomat. So I would say that Americans should come to Southeast Asia and frankly go in many parts of the world and ask, what would you like us to do vis-a-vis -vis China? And they would say, yes, please be firm, please be strong, please insist that China obeys the rules. But at the same time, don't ask countries to choose. Right? That would be the answer. Yeah. The, um, we haven't touched on Taiwan, and Eric Duart uh, from Assumption University, uh, professor there, says, could the U.S. and China get in a military conflict over Taiwan or even the South China Sea? Uh, the answer, of course, theoretically is a yes. But if you ask me for likelihood, I would say likelihood it will be a no, because at the end of the day, you countries go to war if your vital national interests are involved. And neither Taiwan nor South China Sea is a vital national interest of the United States. And as you know, from Kissinger's time, there was a series of understandings that the United States has worked out with China on, on, on Taiwan. And those understandings have worked very well. So I would say that it will be in the interest of the United States to go back to the various understandings that have been worked out because the, these understandings have stood the test of time. They've lasted 50 years almost. So don't, don't, if, you, if you don't change the understandings that were reached, then there'll be, no, there'll be no danger of war. The book focuses, I think, very frankly and, and, and quite appropriately on the role of racism in our potential Asia and China policies. Can you just, in like one minute, summarize what that is and how we can kind of get through it, get over it? Well, I think the, the yellow paddle, as you know, has got deep roots in the Western psyche, going back to the time when the Mongols overtook Europe. And it emerged in the United States when the, at the end of the 19th century, when the United States passed the Chinese uh, Racial Exclusion Act. So it's, it's, it is very much part in the subconscious. As a student of Freud, the best, way, the best way to get rid of something in your subconscious is to surface it and discuss it, and then you kill it. That's the best way to do it. And I would say, if you look at COVID-19, for example, when, when the Trump administration calls it the Kung flu, the Wuhan virus, the China virus, that also reflects the yellow peril uh, dimension. And I think just on COVID-19 very quickly, you know, if, if, if Winston Churchill were alive today, as you know, in, in World War II, Winston Churchill said, if my number one enemy is Hitler, I will partner Stalin to fight against Hitler. You, you're the enemy of your enemy is your friend. So if there's one lesson that COVID-19 is teaching the United States, is that if COVID-19 is an enemy of the United States, COVID-19 is an enemy of China, the United States and China should come together to fight COVID-19. It's logical geopolitical behavior. But what's preventing this is the yellow peril emotional dimension. That's what's preventing rational cooperation against COVID-19. Um, you started out the program talking about you know, the strategy and that America doesn't have a strategy. What should the strategy be? And that will be, we, we've reached our time limit, that'll be the final question. Uh, I would say the key strategy is decide what is the primary national interest of the United States. And I believe the primary national interest of the United States is to create a strong American society. As George Kennan said, a spiritually vibrant society. And the world wants to see a strong American society. 
So I would say in the case of this uh, uh, contest with China, the best way to win this contest against China is not to project more of your seventh fleet into the Pacific. It is to bring, cut down your defense expenditure and spend more on rebuilding your country. So if you had, instead of spending $5.5 trillion on post 9-11 wars, if the $5 trillion had been given to uh, each citizen in the bottom 50% in America, each citizen in the bottom 50% would have received a check for $30,000 at a time when 60% of America's population doesn't have $500 in emergency cash. So I would say the strategy should be, let's focus on the well-being of the American people because the stronger America is as a society, the better it is for the world. That is a perfect note to end on. It really, this has given you a flavor of what is in the book. I urge, and I see no one has disconnected from this call in the course of this hour. So obviously you mesmerized everyone, Kishore. Um, it's, a, it's simply a must read. And it's a must read, not only for policy experts, those who believe we need to be tougher, those who need, believe we need to have a different policy, but for folks, if we do have a new administration, it's really important that they look at this and they think about it because it's written, from a perspective of somebody who's willing to be frank with the United States, willing to be frank with China, and has an incredibly uh, deep understanding of both countries. And I would say it comes through in the book, a love of, of both countries and is a, uh, if the prime minister were still around, he would be proud of you for saying what you say and would be proud of you for writing this book. But Kishore, I can't thank you enough for doing this. I can't thank you enough for speaking out publicly. And I can't thank you enough for writing such a wonderful book. Thank you. Thank you all for joining us on this, on this evening and morning in, in Asia. Bye now. Bye-bye. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.